You are listening to Sickness of Silence, a special Challenging Rhetoric First Thursday series addressing the heartbreaking reality of childhood sexual abuse. The numbers are stark, and stranger danger is the least of our worries. My name is Sherry Roberts, I am a survivor, and I am your host tonight on SOS. Welcome to the show. I don't know anybody that doesn't know the term stranger danger, but I do know way too many people who never look at the one they're with or other family members or others that are close to them or, you know, those people that have authority and are charged with the care of our children, people like doctors, coaches, school bus drivers, teachers. None of those people are strangers. So we wouldn't expect danger there, right? Because we we preach stranger danger. But the statistics are overwhelming, and they show that most children who are sexually abused, like myself, are abused by a family member, which was the case with me time and again. Or someone else they know, which was also the case with me time and time again. Tonight's show is not about naming, blaming, or shaming, because I personally believe that the shaming of the abuser is also the shaming of the victim. And uh, we are for sure going to get into that in the second half of the show tonight and what that means um, because I want to talk about the emotional dynamic of sexual abuse, specifically from the victim's perspective while it was happening. And then, of course, after it had stopped in the healing process. And I think that you might be surprised at some of what you hear. And, um, you know, I haven't had this conversation with the the panelist uh, yet. So I might be surprised at what I hear. And uh, we're not here to offend anybody with what we say. The the show is rated PG-13. I'm not the parent of your child, uh, but I chose PG-13 because I do believe that anyone 13 years or older is, perfectly safe and probably quite appropriate for them to hear this show, but that is uh, all your parents' decision out there. Uh, You can get the download after the show if you can't listen live because you have kids around, and that works too, but, you know, just share it afterwards. So equally tonight, we're going to be focusing on, and this is actually where we're going to start tonight, is a very candid discussion about educators who abuse the children that they're tasked to teach. But before I jump into everything and start bringing on all the rest of the panel tonight for this roundtable, I got some show info that I'm going to share so that you, uh, I can help you help us, help me, because I don't want you to keep the secret because, you know, name of the show, the sickness is truly in the silence. So I'm going to be tweeting and posting to our social media during the live show. You can follow on Twitter at CTR News Feed, which is the mouse head station for uh, this special, which is Challenging Rhetoric. So at CTR News Feed on Twitter, I use the hashtags SOS. Also on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com forward slash sickness of silence. Be sure to check out the website as well at sicknessofsilence.org. There's some really great articles there, some resources for families and survivors. There's even some links there for pedophiles that are seeking help uh, because not all pedophiles act out. Not all pedophiles have actually harmed a child and committed a crime. Um, And whether they have or not, if they're thinking of acting out, I highly encourage them to hit up the website and and then hit up those links. During the live show, I'm going to be taking callers. So if you'd like to call in and participate with me or the guests on the panel, the number tonight is 646-787-1111. 
646-787-1790. That's 646-787-1790. Sorry, there are no 800 numbers anymore on Blog Talk Radio, so um, if you want to call in, call in. If you can't call in, the chat room is also live uh, while the show is live, not in the archive, obviously. You can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash challenging the rhetoric with Sherry Roberts. And it's C-H-E-R-I. That's how you spell Sherry. Um, There's a live chat room there. Please, please be respectful to everybody, not just me, but to my guests and to each other, whoever's in that chat room. I'm going to be launching that and taking a peek in it here in just a second. Um, All the shows, as I mentioned, they are archived for your convenience, for downloading and privacy if that's what's needed. Um, You know, the the download is available approximately 10 minutes after the the live broadcast ends. So um, speaking of social media, I am going to start right now and bring on Sue Schubert. And she is a social media manager for SOS. She is a longtime social media friend of mine uh, and, and, and a real friend of mine. She is also a survivor. Sue? Hi, Sherry. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. I'm sorry that we missed two months right after we launched the first one. That kind of sucked. But, you know, life happened, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. It's good to be back. And the guests uh, can't wait to talk to everybody and and hear their stories. Yeah, we have um, we have a couple people that are returning, uh, and we have uh, new people as well. Um, but, Sue, uh, before we bring on Michael and the rest, I, I want to let the listener know that we are starting a listener contest tonight. I have two autograph books. One is a regular guest, our cybercrime forensic expert, Frederick Lane, his book called Cyber Traps for Educators. And I have another book from one of our new panelists. Her name is Andrea Clements. She's also a survivor. Uh, the book is called Invisible Target. And she is also an educator for the Kitsy Foundation. And so we're real happy to have her, and, and we're going to bring her on a bit. So I have these two books. So I'll explain to you what you need to do because you've got a whole month because it's the, the whole contest is going to run between now and the next uh, panel on March 3rd. So uh, a little later in the show I'll explain all that. But Sue and I are going to be telling some stuff. And um, so in your dealings with that, uh, if you don't know Sue yet, Sue is the social media manager for Sickness of Silence. So on that note, I want to bring back regular guest Michael Skinner, who is a keynote speaker. He's an educator uh, as well in his own way, particularly on this topic. He's uh, become a regular with SOS. He is really a wonderful human being. I, I very much enjoy the stuff that he shares uh, on on social media. It's very empowering and, um, you know, just inspiring as well. It makes you feel good. Michael? Michael, are you with us? Uh-oh, I think we might have lost Michael. Okay, well, he's going to have to call us right back in. Um, so we'll get Michael back on here. Uh, Sue, maybe if you can uh, shoot him a message and tell him that we we lost his call. I'm going to go straight okay. into our next panelist, and that is one of the authors of one of the books we're giving away, Andrea Clemens. Andrea Clemens, as I said, is an educator for the Kids Safe Foundation. And if you don't know anything about Kids Safe Foundation, we're going to be sharing the links on the Facebook page and Twitter and all of that here shortly. Um, I see Michael just pop back up. I'm going to go ahead and bring Andrea on. I'll bring Michael on uh, directly after. 
Anyways, Andrea uh, is the author of the book. She is the educator for Kids Safe Foundation. She's a really wonderful human being. Her story is incredible. Um, I'm in the middle of reading her book. I haven't completed it yet. I have one for me and one for you, uh, whoever that winner may be. So uh, on that note, Andrea, I uh, am really happy to have you on the show. Are you here? I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Um, welcome Wonderful. to the show. Hi. Hi. Thank Hi. you so I'm much. So I'm so excited to be here tonight. I am extremely excited to have you on here, and, and I mean, I've been like chomping at the bit for two months to have you on, so <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and bring Michael on real quick because uh, we, we lost his call there. So um, Michael Skinner is uh, joining us now, I believe. Um, I hope so. Michael, are you with us? Hmm. I keep dropping this call for some reason. Michael, are you with us? I'm with you. Hi. Can you hear me? Sorry about that. I'm having yeah, I'm having some like hiccups with the Blog Talk Radio platform tonight. I apologize yes. uh, to you and to the listeners. <laughs> uh, so as I as I said, Michael Skinner um, is 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 an educator on this issue. He's a keynote speaker. He is a, a is a wonderful musician, and uh, you'll be seeing some links of his, and you can hear some of his music. Those are being shared on the social media tonight as well. I want to also bring on uh, Frederick Lane, who is also a regular guest. And Fred is our cybercrime forensic expert. He's a child pornography expert, child abuse imagery expert. We kind of need to flip that term, but I, I, say, I still say child pornography because that's what the search engines know. That's what people typically know. If I say child abuse imagery, you're thinking of a kid with a black eye, which is a horrible thing. But it's not quite the imagery that um, we'll be talking about tonight. Fred is also an author and, uh, in fact, an author of one of the two books that I'll be giving away. Uh, the book is Cyber Traps for Educators, and uh, which fits in nicely with what we'll be talking about in the first half of the show. Fred, thank you for coming back. Sherry, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. I am just super grateful. And uh, if anybody that listened to the first roundtable panel, you'll know that I bring kind of all of the panelists on like this one by one rapidly, and then we really get into a discussion. So on that note, I want to bring on our very new panelist. Her name is Michelle Forbes. And she came to me in a roundabout way kind of through Fred and through Michael as is Hi to Andrea, and um, she's a wonderful human being. I've I've got to have uh, several conversations with her. Her story is um, it's going to blow you away, and it is also very similar as I mentioned uh, when I opened to Andrea's story. So, uh, Michelle, welcome to the show. Hello, Sherry. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. Now, you, Michelle, you you have a daycare, is that correct? Yes, I run a home daycare. So you work with little kids every day, all day? Every day, all day. <laughs> so you're, in a sense, you're a saint. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a warrior. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Wasn't, weren't the, like, Templar Knights also supposed saintful warriors? Wait, wait, wait. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Actually, Michelle, I'm a so, from a badge of courage. 
<laughs> you were previously a legal a legal assistant, and I'm sure that that comes in handy a lot on on everything that you do. But what I wanted to point out about the fact that you have a home daycare is that you do, in fact, work with kids every day, and you yourself are, to a certain extent, an educator uh, of those children. You're a caregiver and an educator of those children. And we're going to be talking about educators tonight, and we're going to be talking about their effects in your life and Andrea's life and my life, which is a, a quite a different experience, um, and and Michael and Sue's life and kind of and how this went. So I want to jump straight in with Michelle Center, the newest one on the panel, uh, because I'm going to go with you and and Andrea to tell your very similar stories. I want to try to keep it succinct in pieces so that we can address things along the way, and I can bounce back between the two, and the rest of us can, uh, you know, exchange into that. So. Michelle, let's start with the age you were when the abuse happened. Who was your abuser? You don't need to give a name. We don't need to name and shame and blame or all of that, but, um, you know, in the process of your life, who is this person and what kind of the abuses were these? Well, the, the grooming process, as it's called, started when I was 14, a freshman. Uh, it was a very popular, charming, he was one of the most popular teachers in our school. He was also a coach very well liked. He approached me in the hallway with just compliments to start, you know, how beautiful I was and how nice my legs were and just offhanded, you know, pulling me in. How, how old were you? I was 14. I was 14. a freshman. Okay. 14 and, okay. and then he would invite me down to his office uh, to do secretarial duties for him. I spent a lot of time going down there at lunch, you know, in the morning. I would come in early. And the next year I was in his class, and he always said he would set me up front so he could look at my legs and watch me. And it was in that year when I was 15, when I was a sophomore, that was when the first sexual contact was made. I was down in his office doing those secretarial duties, standing next to his desk, you know, when he touched me. He then just began slowly introducing sexual things from then on, you know, all kinds of different things. When I turned 16, he would have me meet him over in the town he lived in, take me out on his motorcycle and took me to a special spot that he had and introduced a lot of sexual things to me. But he never would have intercourse with me until it was supposed to be special, until my 17th birthday. So that was the first time he had sex with me, and it was well, my pause, 17th birthday. Pause, Michelle. Pause real quick. Um, for the listeners, because I think probably everybody on the panel already gets uh, just what you said and the levity of that. In your state, is that the legal age of consent? Yes. Okay. So he wanted yes. to, he, he, he was telling you that he was going to wait to make it special for your 17th birthday when in reality he was making it special and legal for him. Yes. He, um, okay. he actually even encouraged me to have a boyfriend. He even commented to me when I was, 16, you know, when I was turning 16 that he wouldn't take my virginity that that was something he wouldn't take away from me. So he encouraged me to sleep with another boy so he wouldn't have to take that away from me on that special day. Um, so I had sex with him for the first time when I was 17. I was in his office at school. And pretty much we continued to have sex almost every day at school. And 
I was with him until I was 24 years old. 24 years old, 10 years. Mm -hmm. 10 years. Okay, so pause right there. Okay, so we got the setup right there. Let's bounce over to Andrea real quick. Can you kind of give us the same setup for you, Andrea? I, I sure can. It's it's so eerie hearing Michelle. Michelle and I have spoken multiple times how similar our stories are. Um, it's like sometimes these teachers take a course in how to follow the prescribed method. It's amazing to me. Um, he started grooming me. I was in middle school, but um, up in near Boston, um, middle school was a junior high, so it was 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. So it was my ninth grade year, but I was the last year of middle school, and he was my science teacher, and he befriended me. I was a very lost soul when I met him. So I was very depressed and isolated, no self-esteem, and really longing for a father figure. And he locked onto that um, and befriended me. And throughout that ninth grade year, employed what is known as a grooming process where he would slowly cross boundaries, gain trust, um, and spend lots of time listening to my problems, um, sharing things with me, building up a friendship. Um, I'd spend time in his classroom um, at lunch, after school. He'd give me rides home. He'd take me to restaurants, arcades, amusement parks, sometimes with other students and sometimes alone. And he was the same as what Michelle had mentioned with her abuser. He was a very popular, well-liked, above-suspicion teacher. Um, And this was his reputation. He would just be this kind to students so nobody suspected anything funny in the beginning, um, initially. And so this grooming process went on for ninth and 10th grade. And it became very emotionally confusing because the, the closer I got to him, the more special he said I was, the more my depression started to lift. And I was no longer suicidal. I felt like I, if Mr. Bates, I don't need to name him, sorry, but it's all in my book. So, um, But if, if this teacher, who was so cool, teacher of the year, thought that I was special. <laughs> I'm sorry, mother, Andrea, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not laughing at your story. I'm laughing at the fact that, I, you know, the whole naming, blaming, Shannon, you've written a book. I don't I've written a book, yeah, but I, <laughs> I just mean I don't want anybody to feel like this show okay. is a show meant to go and attack people. It's meant yeah, to have a conversation. I didn't want to break any rules Yeah, and this tonight, is the reality. So. <laughs> you've, written, you've written a wonderful book. Anyways, continue. Well, thank you. Um, and so, anyway, for, for two years that continued, and then um, he brought me to his home one time, and he was 18 years older than I was, and he was <clears> married. And so he brought me to his home when his wife was at work, and he pretty much professed his love to me. Um, and I was shocked, and I felt very uncomfortable, but I was flattered, too. It's very confusing. There's so many dynamics I think listeners probably won't expect. Um, and and so it was very complicated, and I, I couldn't really respond, but he just said, I don't know, somehow I've magically, I've just fallen in love with you. I didn't expect this. Um, and you don't have to answer. And he was very kind about it, I thought. And then he kissed me right before we left his house. Very simple. And um, I was really scared and um, you were, nervous. You were how old it, right then? Right then I was about 16. So he okay. waited until I was 16. And 16 is the age of consent in Massachusetts. And okay, so, that was going to be my next question. But you also yep. said something very, very important, and we're going to really get deeper into that in the latter half of the show, but you just said that you were very nervous but also excited. Mm-hmm. Which is it's okay. confusing for listeners or, or just people who, who aren't familiar with the abuse that there can be another side to it besides the horror that you read about on a media story. 
there's there's so many layers. And I think it's I love that you have this show um, because the more we can really talk about the the secretive shaming um, aspects, the more we understand how these teachers tick, how they manipulate students, and the manipulated students how they respond as a teenager. Um, I think the more we understand and really speak about that, the more we can recognize signs and stop it. I think it's critical that we're naming these things. And that that was tough to write in the book because, you know, I didn't know how people would take it, but all I could do was be honest through and through um, so people could get the real story. You know, um, and and everybody, as I I said, I am posting links to Andrea's book, Invisible Target. I'm halfway through the book. It's it's really uh, a great book, and she's she's a really good writer. You'll enjoy, even though the content, the topic of it is, is heavy and hard. She she writes very well, so you, you'll enjoy that. Um, I want to jump so in nice. real Thank quick, you. and then we're going to get back to both Andrea and Michelle's story because that is going to be a driving force of this this following hour here. Is but I want to jump over quickly to Michael and then Sue because um, both of them have stories. Michael's story isn't about per, his personal experience with a teacher, but uh, some experience with female teachers and male students. Michael. Yeah, my experience. It's interesting, but as I when I sh- shared that um, I knew I knew of a female English teacher, and we all just we all knew that she, you know, I'll just use the words we were using back then that she was screwing the jock. That was our terminology that we used back then, and that that's you know crystal clear to me because I remember that we all knew it. Uh, but that was a rite of passage. Anyone who was brought into her lair, I would just say. They thought it was a great thing because she was a very attractive uh, teacher. But as you were talking, I was thinking of a ninth, again, the ninth grade. I had a French teacher, female, and she was putting the moves and stuff on me. I I just detested it because I had been abused by females, so I just, I wanted nothing to do with her. So, but I did know... And a lot of us knew of this, uh, as I said, the English teacher that she was um, uh, she was sexually abusing uh, males back then because they were underage. So I was going I was ready to say sex. No, yes, they were having sex, but uh, there was a power dynamic, and she had she held the power. Of course. Well, anytime, anytime it's an adult, they always they always hold the power. Sue has something to add to this. Um, and before before I go to Sue real quick, I want to let the listeners know that Frederick Lane, who's here on standby, um, is going to kind of round out everything that we've all, you know, that everybody said thus far at this point in the conversation because he truly is an expert and it's going to relate to his book. So uh, quickly, Sue, you have uh, a story about an educator in your life. Yeah, this wasn't. This was a coach, and uh, he was someone that was present a lot of times during um, like gym classes and things like that. And there was there was a time he was flirting. You know, I was probably about the same age, about fourteen. And you've just heard um, the lady stories. It was it was similar. It was it was you're so pretty and. You know, the whole, it started off that way. Um, and some of you know my story. My abuse started when I was eight years old. So by the time I was 14, I I knew kind of the, what the grooming was. And 
when when this this coach started becoming a little more aggressive, a little more wanting to isolate me or pull me into a a classroom or a room where we, it was just he and I, I would I would um, I would try to get out of it, or I would go somewhere else, or I would you know make sure I was with somebody else, and he knew right. it, and it. It got to a point he knew I wasn't going to be part of this, and he started abusing me in other ways. He started, now it became, instead of flirting with me, every time I was with a group of people, he would punish me. He would start yelling. He would become verbally abusive. He would tell me I was, you know, I wasn't going fast enough. I Where was I going? And I was in the wrong classroom, and... Um, and I'm going to tell the principal, and this was this went on for an entire year, and, wow. and nobody, and it was always um, my fault. You know, the principal got involved, teachers got involved. Well, you must have been doing something wrong if he's mad at you, if he's punishing you, if he's making you run laps, if he's, and right, I couldn't couldn't tell anybody how I felt. I mean, he really didn't do anything wrong. I couldn't say, well, he was flirting and now he's mad at me. It wasn't right. something I felt they would understand. So this and went how on for you 14. 14. Okay, so again, this is a, a becoming a pattern here. So um, before I bounce over to Fred to address kind of all of this, I want to I'm going to I'm going to throw a couple monkey wrenches into <clears throat> those stories because my educator stories are vastly different. Um, it doesn't mean that your guys didn't exist; they absolutely did. But this is what listeners, especially those who have never been touched in in their minds, if they don't believe that they've ever been touched somehow, some way, with someone that they know and love, um, child sexual abuse, are probably. Uh, in deep denial, because I don't think that there's a family untouched. However, um, I have two very brief uh, educator stories. One is uh, when I was in ninth grade, I was it was uh, junior high back then. That's how old I am. They called it junior high. And I was in ninth grade, and my pre-algebra teacher, his name was Mr. Onaki. I don't know if he's still alive. I don't know anything about him, but... And this could sound weird because Bruce is now uh, Caitlin, but he looked just like Bruce Jenner back in the heyday when he was on the Wheaties box. <laughs> and everybody loved this teacher. And I had a mad crush on this teacher. And I would intentionally get in trouble mm-hmm. because he had a student desk that sat next to his desk. And it was where you had to sit if you were in trouble. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I always felt... And and this is going to sound bizarre, but I always felt kind of jealous of some of the other girls that I felt that he was giving attention to. Now, we know, all of us that that are survivors of child sexual abuse, we know that uh, uh, this creates a certain sexual dynamic in our lives where um, some people use the term promiscuity. Um, I kind of, I don't know that I agree with that in its entirety, that term, but I don't know that there's a, a great word for it yet. But we're going to talk about that in the other half of the show. So that's one educator story. Now, nothing ever happened with this teacher. I never saw him do anything with another student. I don't know if my jealousy was just my own, you know, stupidity, 
but in, in ninth grade, I had a mad crush, and I was trying to get the attention of a teacher, and that's part of this equation that's important. The other teacher educator story I have is, that I told in the first roundtable is that my sixth grade teacher, literally on my uh, my 12th birthday um, at school, uh, we had a confrontation. I had many confrontations with this teacher. Um, it was a really rough time in my life at that at that moment. And this teacher actually filed a child abuse report with the police, him and the principal, after our conversation. And I recently got that police report that I'd never seen in my life, you know, uh, this 30, 35-year-old police report, it's kind of crazy reading it, and I, I definitely need to scan that in and make a copy. But so he, even though nothing ever came of it, they came to the house and checked and talked, but nobody ever did anything, and the abuse continues in different ways. But, um, you know, he, he was somebody that in my whole life, even now, I have such gratitude for. So I, those are my teacher stories. So, Fred, you are the expert, really, on, uh, well, you and Andrea, but you are the expert, really, on, on, on this. And so can you address kind of all these varying degrees of this? And then let's get deep into it. Sure, Sherry. I mean, certainly as an initial matter, um, it, it's staggering to listen to these stories. It, it really just blows me away. Um, I, I'm amazed at, at what people get through and the transformative nature of the work that you are all doing. Um, it's, it is truly admirable, and, and I don't think that that can be said enough. The, the, the issue – well, let me give you a little bit of background for your, for your listeners who are here for the first time. My background is in a combination of law and uh, technology. So I've been working with computers in one capacity or another for about 40 years. I went to Boston College Law School in the 80s. Um, I think that there is a serious problem that we need to confront and that parents need to be aware of. All of the stories that you're talking about are ones in which Technology did not really play a role. And in the last 15 to 20 years or so, we've run into a situation where um, all of the technology that has come into place has now made it possible for the grooming process to go much, much faster um, with much more, quote-unquote, privacy relative to other adults and also... Um, with much more direct contact between teachers and students. And, you know, I'll give you a couple of observations that I think are relevant to this, um, one of which is that with the introduction of mobile devices, kids now all have a direct phone number. So it's possible for educators and other adults to get in touch with students without adult intervention, particularly parents. And then the other thing is that because kids use their mobile devices basically 24-7, that means that if they have a way of communicating directly with a teacher, for instance, with a cell phone number or using an app like Kik or WhatsApp or any of the dozens of other communication tools, the communication is almost 
always going directly from the student's bedroom to whatever room the teacher is in. And by its very nature, that breaks down the barriers or the boundaries that should exist between educators and students. And we're not going to get rid of technology. That's simply not a practical outcome. But we need comprehensive education for teachers and students about why those boundaries are important. And then we also need to help parents understand how important ongoing supervision is of what their kids are doing. Um, I, I, I agree completely with what you said. Andrea would like to comment on that. Andrea? Yeah, Fred, I just absolutely agree. And I pointed out in my book several times that this was in the early 80s when it happened to me, and there were no cell phones, which is hard to even picture these days, how we communicated. Right. And, and, and what he would do is back then we had um, phone booths, and they would have a phone number where you could get incoming calls. And of he course, would have right. to wait by different phone booths in designated places at designated times so he could contact me, um, one, so that he would ac- have access to me, but also so would, the number wouldn't show up on his phone bill. Remember That's that? right. <laughs> Remember that? And yep. I'm so old. Absolutely. <laughs> and, um, and so there was one at the high school um, that I would have to wait by, and he would be so controlling about if I weren't there. I was probably with a boy, and the stress I would have would be so intense, and I would be waiting downtown for a call at a certain time. And um, and to make plans to see me and everything, or he'd have to call my main home phone number and hope that my mother wouldn't be listening when I would try and get the message of when I was supposed to meet him. It was incredibly difficult for him to access me, and yet he was able to do it consistently by having close control. And I, I cannot imagine what my life would have been like if I had a cell phone and the text that I would have gotten from that man that would have been so troubling and traumatic. And he would have just had free reign. So I think about it constantly. Like it would have been such a game changer back then. So I just had to kind of share that. And I think that's that great, is, Andrea. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chart. Forgive me. I was going to say that's a really great comment. And that that plays on something I was going to say a few minutes ago with something else that you were talking about. I would like all of the listeners um, to – because we're all varying ages, uh, whether those on the panel and those listening now and listening tomorrow and next week. Okay, so I want people to think about what a 14-year-old looks like now in today's society and what modern technology is now in today's society and whether you're somebody that's my age, I'm, I'm going to be 48 in a couple months, or you're somebody that's 20 years younger than me, I want you to really truly see what somebody my age, what a 14-year-old would have been and what technology was then. Because that's very, very important in this conversation. I want to go to Michelle real quick because I know she wants to comment on that. Well, I wanted to touch on what Andrea said also about well, him trying to hold of her. Um, I, I had something very similar. The teacher that I was with was 25 years older than me. He was married. And most of the time we spent together was at school, but my friends would drop me off to his house. But the way he would get a hold of me was just as difficult. I didn't have a cell phone. or I can't imagine, like Andrea said, if, you, if he'd have had that capability, what he would have been able to do. I mean, the letters, the notes, the things he did to me verbally, 
let alone if he'd been able to tie me with, you know, a cell phone. But I had just seen a news article today, a teacher in Troy, Illinois, well, he was in Mount Vernon, was arrested today for using an app called Whisper Mm -hmm. to contact his students. He was a math teacher. They had found the mother took her daughter's cell phone to look at her text and found text from this teacher and reported it to police. But they're asking for help because he has contacted over 360 contacts of young girls on this site. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's what Fred is talking about is the access, is the ability to, I call it interviewing. I, The teacher that was with me, he interviewed a lot of girls. The ability to interview is so much easier now because of social media. Well, it's a form of fishing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. he's, throwing, yes. he's, he's throwing lures into the social media sea and right. waiting to see what nibbles he gets. And people with this kind of pathology are, have, a, have a radar for people who are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, and they look for people who are going to respond to these kinds of overtures. And the change is that, you know, and I, and I read Andrea's book, which I, I thought was just marvelous in its honesty and, and forthrightness. When you look at, at what a teacher like that could do, the, the number of people he could approach is, is relatively finite. Whereas someone like this teacher in Illinois, I just looked him up on the web. I mean, the technology expands the potential pool by hundreds, if not thousands. It's it's really remarkable stuff. Um, Michael, Sue, do I, either of you have something to say on that? Yeah, I do. I, I want to think about it on another level, and I think um, Andrea mentioned something about that, too, uh, about being um, being stressed waiting for a phone call or a message um, in this relationship of control. And in my situation... Um, although he wasn't abusing me, that was the direction it was going, and he started to bully me. I I was terrified of this guy, mm-hmm. and I was terrified of, of ever having to be alone anywhere with this guy. He scared me. I and even though I knew I you know I knew on some level what his intentions were, I can't imagine his access to me. Um, at that time and and being that terrified where he when he didn't have the same kind of access these people have now he he was threatening even though it wasn't like a direct threat you know uh, I'm going to hurt you or anything like that he was very threatening to me so there's also that pathology and I think you'll agree with me on this Fred some of these people aren't just they aren't going to take no for an answer mhm Right. Well, and if I, Cherry, if I may, let me let me just add yes. one thing. There's um, the internet, and I, I don't want this. I don't want my comments to come off incorrectly. I'm a huge technology fan. I think that the benefits of technology, writ large, are tremendous. It's it's enabled all kinds of benefits, and so I I think it's important to to make that very clear. But I also think that there is a potential for the Internet to amplify the worst aspects of our society. 
And one of the examples I would offer for people, it's a phrase that we really need to start paying attention to, is a movement that's been dubbed neo-masculinity, in which mm-hmm. people are making an argument, you know, particularly uh, deeply frustrated men are making an argument that you know, basically there's an entitlement to sexual activity or that um, the, the kinds of assaults that we're discussing tonight are not inherently wrong. And so, uh, unfortunately, that opinion probably has been uh, persistent throughout our history, but the Internet gives it a coalescing quality. And you get these forums developing where people can ratify each other's beliefs, regardless of how insane they are. And so I think that that is contributing to some of these issues that we're discussing today. Look, the bulk of it, when we're dealing with the very small percentage of teachers who offend like this, is simply that they are mentally ill, that they are actually evilly predatory, whatever combination of those factors uh, may actually be present. But the Internet does offer a lot of rationalizations for misbehavior. That's a really good point. Um, Everybody pause for just a minute. I just want to let everybody, if you're tuning in late here, uh, let you know that you are listening to Sickness of Silence, which is a challenging rhetoric special series that I do every first Thursday here. We have a roundtable panel of guests that are talking about childhood sexual abuse. Um, Almost all of us, except for Fred, uh, everybody on the panel is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Fred is one of the experts on the panel. Uh, Even some of the survivors are experts in their own right, uh, like Andrea and Michael. And so um, you can find us, uh, the website, at sicknessofsilence.org, and you can find me on Twitter, at CPR Newsfeed. We are doing a contest for a, a, a book from Fred Frederick Lane and or from Andrea Clemens. Uh, Fred wrote a book called Cyber Traps for Educators, and which is very on, on point and on topic to the show tonight. And Andrea wrote a book about, called Invisible Target, and her entire story is very on point and on topic tonight. So, uh, again, we have a roundtable panel of guests, the survivors and experts of childhood se- sexual abuse, um, so I want to jump right over to Michael uh, for a moment. And, Michael, I, I was wondering if you could very succinctly, um, and, and it's hard when it's such a, a heavy uh, story um, and it's our lives, but if you can succinctly tell the listener, in case this is their first time um, listening to this series, uh, your story, um, because I have a very specific question about it. I know that there were pedophile rings involved in, in your childhood. So, Michael? Yeah. Um, mine was both of my parents and their circle of friends. So, yes, it was a pedophile ring. I didn't have those words back then. And there was also a church group that my uh, mother was part of, and that involved a pastor. So my father's circle of friends, uh, the pedophile, they were... Uh, they were the gangsters, and my mothers were the uh, church uh, goers. So uh, it was, yeah, it was it was tough. It was not nice. Um, but something on the whole school thing, as you folks are talking, is I'm 61. So 
I moved this back in 1970, with this English teacher that I was talking about. And if I knew this and so did others, the teachers knew this. And so obviously with all the technology today, what, what angers me, we need to break, yes, break the silence, the code of silence that exists amongst professionals because they know this stuff happens. So how can we create something in the schools that there's a poster, there's a bulletin, and there's a safe space so that a student can report because it's just it's beyond a no-no that a, a teacher and a student, any type of contact, that's it's reprehensible, but it it's wrong. And so I think that has to be also part of this dialogue because we can talk about it till we're blue in the face, but until the schools start putting something in their programs to make awareness of this, we're just gonna you know we're gonna keep having talk shows like this. I, I agree with you, Michael. I, I totally agree with you, and I, and I think that Andrea, uh, particularly as well as Fred, uh, can speak on that. I, I do want to ask you a question with regards to your background, though, because I want Fred to be able to speak on it as well before he leaves. Fred's only with us for uh, about twenty more minutes, so um, you had such prolific stuff happen in your childhood, Michael, and because there were pedophile rings involved specifically, I have. Do you know? Or have you wondered, do you have any uh, idea, w- was there um, imagery taken? Is there is there imagery of your abuse that's out there I- well, in the world? I... Uh, and, and, Michael, I, I asked specifically because of the difference of technology from then and now. Well, this is... You know how we, we deal with the trauma and the after, aftermath. To this day... I still have a hard time going to a doctor's or a hospital and getting an X-ray or an MRI or any type of imagery or anything because I knew back then and I used to comment on it and I had the thoughts of it. I always uh, they took pictures all the time. I I remember I always you know one of I think one of my first advocacy efforts was when I was a young boy I I took a stack of uh, child pornography magazines and books, uh, and I brought them across the street and I buried them in the woods. Uh, This was at my parents' house. So, yes, pictures were being taken all the time, being made to uh, get in positions and different things, but that's as much as I remember. I I can't give you any more specific than that, but, yes, pictures were taken. Okay, so before I jump back over to um, Fred, I want to ask uh, Andrea and Michelle for your particular stories, particularly Michelle, because your relationship was so deep, you ended up living with the guy and all of that. Did, were there images taken? And and if you can, if you if you don't mind, uh, telling the audience, the listeners, uh, your ages, so that again they can put perspective of how long of this ago this was when these incidents happened and what technology was then. Because now you can take a picture and post it in seconds, whereas before you take a picture, you take it to Photomat, and then, you know, I don't know what you do from there to proliferate. I guess they would, you know, print them out and mail them, you know, back then. But anyways, um, so Andrea. Um, for me, um, the I had the opposite experience where I was not allowed to have a picture of either of us because that would be evidence. So I never owned a single picture of him. Um, later on when I was working with the police, um, which I don't know, we may talk about later, they asked for pictures. I had nothing. Um, and he wouldn't take any pictures of me because he was afraid he'd get caught. So 
Luckily, no. Okay. For me. And Michelle, how about for you? We we had a lot of pictures together. We we actually did you have pictures together, together from the early the early ages, say between fourteen and seventeen. I don't think there were the any illegal pictures of us together. In, in, no, when I was in high school, not that I can think of. It was after after I got out of high school. We pretty much from the time I was eighteen, we we went to the movies. We went uh, we went on vacation together. We had our picture taken together all the time. And he was married that entire time that we were together. Correct. Sue, do you have something to chime in with regards to um, pictures from the teachers that you're talking about? No. I, I, I See, I don't think it was we had that kind of technology. So, no, there was um, nothing that I ever remember as far as, as photographic or photographs or anything like that. Okay, so, Fred. Yes. Your expertise, I mean, your 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 real true blue expertise is, is many things, but one of the things I keep bringing you back for time and again, even before I started SOS, was um, child pornography. And I explained my terminology for that. And um, can you explain to the listener what I was trying to explain about that verbiage of child pornography versus, you know, the abuse imagery and stuff. Can we start there? Well, yeah, and you'll need to help me out a little bit on this, Sherry, just to make sure that we're exactly on the same page. But, uh, you know, part of the issue that I think you were getting at, which totally makes sense, and and I've, I've written about this for a number of years. My first book was actually about obscenity and the rise of the online adult industry. So I did a a fairly good historical analysis of how all of this developed. And I think what might be useful for your listeners to understand is that the concept of of child pornography per se is remarkably new, that the Supreme Court really only validated the concept in the early 1980s, actually right about the time that I graduated from uh, from high school. So uh, basically what they what the Supreme Court did was to uphold a New York law that made the possession of sexually explicit images of individuals under the age of 18 uh, not subject to First Amendment protection. So that meant basically that the state of New York or any other state, and they all did, but any other state could then criminalize it, which you know, is, is absolutely the right thing. So, you know, the issue is is that if you are, if you are, you know, dealing with, and, and I do computer forensics and I work with a lot of defense attorneys, if you're dealing with a case in which someone has been downloading or producing or distributing sexually explicit images of someone under the age of 18, those images are inherently abusive because someone under the age of 18 cannot legally consent to have those photos taken. Now, there's a lot is of... That, is that I, nationally, Fred? I'm sorry. I know that every state has a different laws as far as the age of consent, but when it comes to these, this imagery, is, is the, the, the age of 18, is that a national number? Yes, it is. Okay, if you're thank talking you. That's about really federal. important. That's an argument I have all the time with people. Right. Well, and Cherry, to be absolutely clear, 
if you're talking about a potential federal prosecution. Now, every state also has child pornography laws. And to be fair, many of those laws track their age of consent. But it is, it is a better rule of thumb, given the fact that we're all subject to federal law, that the age of 18 is the actual cutoff with respect to sexually explicit images. And there have been cases in which either boyfriend or girlfriend uh, or husband and wife, even remarkably enough, were taking photos of each other that were legal under state law that got them into trouble under federal law. So it, it can get a little bit confusing. But putting aside those relatively rare examples, the vast majority of the cases that we're talking about tonight involve individuals who could not legally, and in many cases could not even intellectually, consent to what was being done to them. You know, in the sense of creating these incredibly invasive images, really abusive images, for someone else's gratification. That's Those are child abuse images. There's absolutely no question about it, which is actually one of the reasons that Congress not long ago passed a restitution law which gives victims of child pornography the ability to recover uh, sums of money from anyone who is caught in possession of those images, regardless of whether or not they had anything to do with the production or distribution of those images. And, of course, their argument is always that they didn't hurt anybody. I get that. So I want to bring this back to the schools. I do not remember yeah. the exact case that just popped into my mind right now. It was several years ago. But there was a case of, I don't know if the dude was a janitor or, or a superintendent or some guy that worked within a school district. He It turned out he had, like, little cameras in different places. To your knowledge, uh-huh. Fred, have you dealt with any issues within the school specifically where there was filming going on by – you know, a pervert. Oh, good Lord, yes. I mean, if and this will be my sort of one plug well, for the hour. Well, but Fred, if, I, and, yeah. and I'm not just asking for me. Let me let me let me make this abundantly clear. I want you to address every listener of this particular podcast because if you're not a parent, you have a child attached to you. And when we're talking about breaking silences and stopping the silence and and the sickness of silence and all of that. The silence really is the disease because everybody cringes when we talk about this stuff. And I can tell you that the people on this panel, the people that were on the last panel, the people that will be on the next panel, we're not going to stop talking about this. We have to make this everyday conversation. So, Fred, talk about what really happens in schools. Absolutely. Sherry, I think that is such an important point. We do need to have these conversations. Parents need to have these conversations with their kids They need to have the conversations with their school administrators and their school boards. People really need to do uh, much, much more discussion of all of this. So let's start with the opening premise, Sherry, that the rules of technology development are smaller, cheaper, and faster. And so that has had a terrible impact on the ability of voyeurs and pedophiles and uh, you know, basically uh, sociopaths to capture these kinds of images because it is so much easier to hide cameras now than it used to be. So in my book, Cyber Traps for Educators, I talk about a half dozen different cases in which individuals have either hidden cameras in bathrooms, locker rooms, changing rooms, 
uh, curtained off areas of their classroom or have actively taken photos of students, you know, in some cases with the student's knowledge because they groom them for that purpose, what have you. But the really scary stuff is the ability to hide cameras um, in uh, uh, fire alarms, in wall clocks, in, in anything. Um, in anything, really, right? One of the cases I was called in to consult on down in Baltimore was a Johns Hopkins uh, gynecologist who had purchased a video pen. So it was a pen oh. that was in his pocket. And he taped over a thousand gynecological exams. It was absolutely staggering. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I, I thought that case was going to be a huge chunk of work. And two things happened. Number one, the doctor committed suicide. Secondly, Johns Hopkins wrote a check basically the next month for $125 million to settle a case. There was absolutely no way they were going to let that go to trial. Now, the vast majority of the educator cases on which I work have nowhere near that number of victims, although the one I wrote about in Wales, guy who's basically sitting in prison for 30 or 35 years now, taped two or 300 young children in a Welsh elementary school bathroom by hiding three cameras in the bathroom. You know, so... People really do need to understand that technology allows a perverse kind of creativity that demands discussion. We absolutely have to be aware of what can happen and what we should be doing to combat it. And and I firmly believe, and I applaud you so much, Sherry, I firmly believe that the only way to make progress is to bring this out from, from the dark corners. You know, thank thank you, Fred, and I I applaud you that you have this faith in me and what I'm trying to accomplish here because, you know, this is one of the hardest things for anybody that's been through this to talk about in the way that that it has to be spoken of. And it it can't just be, oh, let me tell this person because they should know. This has to, the only way, you know, people talk about, um, those and poor Dr. Sarah, who was on Dr. Sarah Good, who was on the last panel uh, that we did in, in December, she gets lambasted all the time because people try to say that she's trying to normalize pedophilia. That's not at all what she's trying to do. But we do right. need to normalize. We do need to normalize this conversation because it's never been normalized. And until it is normalized, until we can have this as everyday conversation like a coaster on your damn coffee table, okay, that it's just there. <laughs> okay, it's just there. It's a part of our daily. That is the only way that we are going to reach above this. I want to ask you a quick question, Fred, and then I want to go to Andrea because I know that she can speak highly on this educator issue that you're discussing. But Michael put a, a he, he he sent me a picture um, of when he was a child because we're talking about this topic, and I had mentioned that I do know that um, a lot of the big wig cybercrime forensic dudes like you, um, because of technology, you have facial recognition, and that's part of the ways that you're able to identify victims. And um, Michael's very curious about that technology and if it's something that he can look into to find out, uh, you know, about that. So, Fred, how does that facial recognition work in this in this case? Well, it's I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds on the forensic stuff, Sherry, because it it would 
be very time consuming and and would be here well into the evening. But it can but, be done, right? Well, yes, but with limitations. Understand that that in order for facial recognition software to function properly, it needs a database of of known faces, right? So you it's it's harder to apply facial recognition software to recognizing uh, young women and young boys who have been, abu- have been abused basically for lack of a better time frame before Facebook got launched. I mean, the, the concept of, of facial recognition really started to take off when we developed social media and all of us, and I'm sure some of us on this, on this broadcast started tagging people right on social mm-hmm. media. And all of a sudden we're, tra- yeah. we're training Facebook to recognize those faces and Facebook and Google and, and inevitably, by extension, the NSA and the CIA are engaging in a uh, an arms race or a face race, if you will, to, to <laughs> well, figure... Well, Fred, Fred <laughs> you are on challenging the rhetoric. This might be a special series, and we're, you and I are going to talk about this on a regular uh, weekly show because I think it might have started with the NSA and not the other way around, but go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I Trust me on this one, Sherry. Trust me on this one. Because, you know, again, even... Even with the NSA, the NSA never ran a social a social media app, right? So it was much more difficult for them to do all of this. The other piece that I want to get into, and I think that this is relevant to a little bit of what Michael was talking about, is that, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of computer forensics, the real identification is not of individuals per se, but it's of actual images. And there's a process called hashing or putting data files through what is known as a hash algorithm that produces a unique digital signature for any image or any file that that the forensic examiner is working with. That digital signature can be compared to any suspect image. And if they're identical, the forensic examiner knows that the individual depicted in the image is the same person. And so even though it's not technically facial recognition, it is a way of verifying the identity of known victims. The problem is that you can change the image just enough to make that not work, or you have a large number of images depicting people who have not been identified through a court process. And therefore, even if you find a match, because these things get distributed all over the world, even if you find a match, you don't necessarily uh, know who that is and you can't trace it back to them. So the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is developing and, and has developed a very large library of known images of child pornography. But there is a huge amount of work to be done. It may well be that in, say, another five to ten years, the combination of hash values and facial recognition will make significant progress in this area, Uh, but there's a huge amount of work to be done. So uh, thank you, Fred, because I I think that, um, you know, when we think about technology, we think about 
how it applies to how we use it, every individual, which is different. You know, what I use technology for in my daily life is different than every single one of you. And so um, being able to kind of break it down like that is important. I know that you are going to be leaving us in about seven minutes. So really quickly, we have about seven minutes left with Fred. I want to jump to Michelle quickly. I'm going to let Andrea have the closing question or, or the question of hers with you. And then I have, and then I'm going to close you out so that you can go, Fred, and with a, with a final question. So, Michelle, do you have a question for Fred that specifically addresses uh, the educator abuse issue um, and or uh, pornography streaming out of schools? No, mine was for Michael. I wanted to comment on Michael. So, if you want to go to Andrea, <laughs> then you can come back to me. That's good. Okay, Andrea, go ahead with my. With, with okay, that. I didn't have a, um, a question as much as a comment. Um, earlier about, you know, how the difficulty with technology and giving the teacher, the abusive teachers access. Um, the flip side that I'm grateful for about that is that I believe, I get questions very frequently. Um, do I think that there's an increase in educators abusing students or are we hearing about it more? And um, I, I think about technology, are we hearing about the abuse more? frequently in the media. Yeah. Um, and I think the one benefit of the technology is that these teachers are getting busted so much more easily. And um, for that, I'm grateful. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I'm not yeah. happy about the action, but it's this double-edged sword. It's, it's, um, there's, uh, how many times do we hear? I mean, it's proof. The texts, everything, um, they're getting caught so much more easily and getting prosecuted more easily. The fight is so much smaller because of the technology. So I was just adding that little point in there earlier. Fred, did you want to comment on that? Well, you know, I, I, I think we are fortunate. The one thing I will advise people about is that um, the Internet uh, offers the illusion of anonymity, mm-hmm. but for a variety of technical reasons, that is, in fact, largely an illusion. It, it yes. takes a great deal of sophistication and skill to uh, be truly anonymous, uh, much like the anonymous hacking group. It's, it, these are people who who spend you know 36 hours a day, you know, practicing and honing their computer skills, which right. is vastly I want another secret. The... <laughs> I want 36 hours in a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to live in your mother's basement to start with. So. <laughs> <laughs> but look, but look, the upshot of it is that um, you know most most educators do not have those skills, and so they do stupid things and they get mm-hmm. caught. Um, you know, it would be far better if they didn't do them in the first place or they weren't Absolutely. hired in the first place. But you know, they they just they they don't really appreciate the level of sophistication that law enforcement is bringing to the game these days. That being said, I, I agree. Michael, overwhelmed... and, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask Michael and Sue if they had a final question for you, Fred, before before you need to go. Sounds um, good. No, thank you for what you're doing, Fred. Thank, uh, you. thank you, Michael. Fred, I I do have a final question, and it um yeah. you know it it goes back to what we were talking about. Um, you know, with uh, the the filming in schools uh, and stuff like that. And 
I recently had, well, I guess it doesn't have to go to do with schools per se, but the filming in unusual and unexpected places. And um, I recently had sent you a couple weeks ago an article that we were discussing with regards to the hacking of baby monitors. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I, I was just going to say that my, my daughter, my 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 middle daughter, so it's my second grandbaby, was just born uh, a week and a half ago, and both of my daughters, my grandson is going to be four in March, and she had wanted to have the video camera type baby monitors, and you know, I mean, I I didn't see the need for that. Um, but <laughs> when I saw that story, because I, you know I'm a conspiracy theorist, and that I've been telling everybody about how our um, <clears throat> our computers and stuff are hacked, and everybody called me crazy. <laughs> so go ahead. Well, thanks. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is what I was trying to say: is that parents have have an affirmative obligation to uh, supervise their kids, but they also have an obligation to educate themselves. Uh, just a little bit of a preview, next month, probably after the next roundtable, I'll be releasing my next Cybertraps book, which is Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. And this is one of the topics that I'm going to talk about because parents should not buy a device that they don't fully understand or aren't willing to spend the time to understand. And there's a real risk with the growing what's called the internet of things that we are bringing the internet into more and more aspects of our lives and we're not paying enough attention to the security aspects of that and and that i think is is something that we will rue at one point or another i i would discourage parents from buying internet connected devices unless they're absolutely confident that they know how to lock them down. Which brings me back to how you and I first met, which was one of my challenging rhetoric shows, talking about technology and children's devices like the Hello Barbie, which is <laughs> yes, um, <right>. voice recognition. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, it's it's all it's Wi-Fi enabled with voice recognition. And then Thomas the Tank Engine. Yep. has a program now for the television that literally interacts with your child, voice recognition and motion recognition. I mean, this is crazy stuff. So when we talk about people that are worried, adults, okay, that are worried about their own privacies, that are buying this technology for their kids, and they're apparently not worried about their own privacies, let alone that of their children. Fred, thank you so much for joining us, and I and I hope that you'll be back with us on March 3rd for the, the next roundtable. Um and uh, yes, so I'm going to go pleasure. ahead and, and let you go because I know that you had to, huh? It would be a pleasure, and I appreciate uh, the conversation with all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Fred. I, I love having you. Your your knowledge and your wisdom on this uh, and your skills is, is very needed and important and appreciated by all of us, I'm sure. Um, Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so on that note, I'm going to jump over real quick. If everybody will, on the panel will just uh, kind of hang with me for a second, I want to jump over and do a couple um, headlines, some of the latest child sexual abuse headlines that, that are out there. Um, there was a Stratford man that was jailed for possessing 178 discs containing child sexual abuse images. 178 discs, keyword being discs because most people don't use discs 
anymore, <laughs> floppy or otherwise. Um, the man's defense is that, you know, he did this, ten, you know, 10 years ago when it wasn't illegal or whatever. Okay, bullshit, it's still child pornography. We had child abuse at a daycare, or they're saying that child abuse at daycare and youth groups is rarer than thought according to some surveys. Now, I would say that we have heard some pretty sensationalized stories about daycare child abuse over the last several de decades, um, as well as different things in different, like, summer camp type stuff, youth group stuff. Um, is it where it's the most prolific? I don't know that. The survey says no, but we do know factually, statistically, studied for decades and decades, we do know that the stats are stranger danger is the more rarer of the child sexual abuse occurrence. It is a parent figure, uh, an aunt, an uncle, uh, a cousin, whether male or female. It is a sibling even. And, and they don't always have to be older. It could even be a younger sibling. Um, and, and sometimes size does matter in, in some of these because of an intimidation factor for power and control to uh, make their victim intimidated. But, you know, it could be a family friend. It could be the the man and or woman that a parent is seeing that seems so interested in them and such a wonderful um, provider and caretaker and support of their child that doesn't have baby daddy or baby mommy. And the reality could be that that person is interested in you, not for you, but for your kid. And one of the hardest things that everybody has with dealing with this subject is looking at the one you're with, looking at the one you love. Let me tell you, it is predominantly men that are abusers of children, sexual abusers of children. But it's not always men. It is uh, sometimes it's women. And for the people that are abused by women, particularly the boys that are abused by women, the psychological factor of that is quite different. And I challenge anybody uh, listening, whether it's happened to you or not, to really look into how this works. But the, the reality is here is that how sexual abuse happens all the time, and we can't omit suspicion of daycares and youth groups and sporting groups and coaches and even our own uh, pediatricians, the school bus driver, and as you've heard for the last hour, teachers, okay? Teachers is, is, is an ongoing thing. We hear stories about this almost every week about the teachers. Another headline was that one of the convicted pedophiles who's got to wear a GPS monitoring anklet, you know, one of those uh, monitoring bracelets, until the day he dies. Um, hey, I think maybe they all should at that point. Once they've abused, if they didn't seek help before they abused and they've, they, they've committed crimes and they've hurt a child, then they need to be on a radar. Victims of German pedophile sect in Chile, they are seeking justice. Don't give, them, uh, give the victims justice, but don't give the abuser justice. There's an alleged pedophile ring that was busted uh, in, in Quebec Toronto, uh, seven cities were involved, including Montreal, uh, Quebec City, Toronto. Uh, there was a three-year probe of online activities out there. I mean, these are just in the last week. You can do a Google search yourself and put in the words pedophile or child sexual abuse or child abuse even. And it is rampant. 
okay? And why is it rampant? Because we're not talking about it like the coaster on our coffee table, like I said earlier. <laughs> we talk about it to the person that's going to listen, and they only listen because they want to care for a moment, but then they want us to shut up. But as soon as we shut up, then we're still keeping the secret, and this all still goes on. And we need to completely, completely stop that. So now Fred is gone, and we have five people here on the panel, including myself. We have Sue and Michael and Andrea and Michelle. So, Sue, you've been really, really quiet. Um, In case somebody's listening new to this uh, show tonight that didn't hear the first panel, can you briefly give the listener uh, a little bit of an idea of what your abuse story was? Well, mine was, mine started... um Shortly after my eighth birthday, um, and it was uh, a neighborhood a neighborhood guy. He was probably in his uh, mid to late twenties, and uh, very similar. Uh, he was charming, and everybody knew how, him. How old were you? Too? I how was eight. How old you were? Eight. Eight yeah, years I was old. Eight. I was eight years old, and I was also very precocious and um, very smart, but also a little bit alienated. I was kind of separated from uh, friends and such. And here was this guy that everybody liked. I mean, he he was the charmer. And it was at a friend's house. There were other people there. And, and, I mean, it all started with the same kind of grooming, um, uh, you're so smart, and what do you know about this, and what do you know about that, and did you see this, did you, you know, did you want to take a walk with me, and um, and it was just over a period of about a month before the abuse started, um, and it just kind of happened gradually, and it happened um, several times during um, about a four-month period. Uh, and then he kind of disappeared after that, and I wasn't quite sure what happened. Um, it, he didn't live in the neighborhood. He was just always at somebody's house. He was either partying or, I have no idea, probably scoping. Uh, it would be my guess and, now. So in your childhood mind, you actually experienced what would be the equivalent of like a letdown, some kind of jealousy when he disappeared. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, he disappeared for a while, and it, it, there's a lot of conflicting feelings. I, I, you know, I didn't know why he left, or and there was the fear of getting in trouble or getting him in trouble. Um he came back the following, he was back again, I know, I, I, the time frame I'm not real sure of, um, probably late that year, um, he was at somebody's house or with somebody that I knew, and, and it, 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 was a, it was a completely different um, attitude. It was it, almost abusive. Is stay away from me, and um, I don't want to talk to you, and there were a lot of little things, and and I, I wasn't sure why. I didn't know if I did something wrong, and uh, or I got him in trouble, or I was in trouble, or 
it was really a strange experience for me, and I, I, I didn't, there was no way for me to understand why this person that groomed me <laughs> and treated me that way all of a sudden was now on, on the abusive side. So, Stu, um, you and and Andrea and Michelle's stories, Andrea and Michelle's stories are very similar. Your story um, is similar in the context of it was a little bit more outside. Michael and I have a little bit more um, in in common uh, as regards to some of our abuse. And, and I have to say that Michael's story is horrific. And I oftentimes throughout my days I it flashes on me. Michael, I, I, I want to I want to bring you back into this conversation right now because I think it's important for the listener because we, we we've been so focused on talking about educator abuse and all of that and Michael's on our panel and his abuses were, were different. But they are uh completely equally as valid um, and in, in my opinion, they are so horrific, the things that happened to him, because they began in infancy. And so the listeners need to understand this because when we're having a conversation, when it's a consistent, constant conversation, we have to say things that are uncomfortable to you and even, and, and even falling out of our mouths. It's not easy for me to say some of these things. It's not easy for any one of these people on this panel to share their stories and, and talk about what they what has happened to them. So, Michael, can you explain to the listener, I, I want to get into the emotional aspect of this, and I'm going to single you out for a second, Michael, because I think from our previous roundtable and, and, and previous conversations, I think that we are going to find some very dramatically and varying different things where we go uh, for the rest of the show. Michael, on an emotional level, when because things started, uh, the abuse started happening to you in infancy, the emotional level of what you knew as love was completely different from the very, very get-go. Um, whereas, even for me, starting at three and a half years old, um, I was still a little older, and so it was slightly different, and then for the others, slightly different. So can you address the, the love aspect, what you knew as love? Well, this was the the reality for me. Uh, there was no love, and it was probably when I was 12 or 13, I finally realized that my parents did not love me because they were you know, both narcissist but it was just brutal in what they did but I was blamed for all of their problems and I I wasn't loved I I I so for me to hear someone talk about love I pardon my English I thought it was a bunch of bullshit you know I just I thought it was a bunch of crap I didn't learn love until I was you know 21 years old and holding my first daughter in my my arms uh that's how I learned love was from my children. But prior to that, and I could like people, but I didn't know what love was. I didn't. It was never given to me. I, I just had no no concept of it. And then the other thing is, uh, I never felt like I belonged, and I don't belong anywhere. And I'm, you know, I'm a musician. I, I've been in the public eye. I'm I'm very outgoing. I, I don't stay to myself, but I still don't to this day no matter whatever accomplishments I've achieved, I still don't feel like I belong in the room or with a group of people. And 
I know it. I, I recognize it. I work on it, but I don't know if it'll be with me till the day I die. But uh, that's that's my reality. That that is what it is left with me. You know, the the horror of what the sexual abuse and the physical abuse that in of itself was devastating. But boy, the emotional abuse, the psychological stuff, that aftermath of that, I I think sometimes that that plays even more havoc upon our psyche and us spiritually. I agree, and and I want to I want to say something um, to give you some validation and some acknowledgement. Although all of us here on the panel, our abuses were vastly different. Even though even though Andrea and Michelle have similar stories, their their internalization and how it impacted them is still different. And um, I don't think anybody on this panel, I don't think anybody I've ever met that has had the braveness to to share their story with me over the years feels like they belong. I think that is a common denominator that starts from the day it begins. Regardless of the actual situation and, uh, you know, as they're varying with what's happened to each person. But I I, I do think that's a common denominator of how we feel about ourselves. I think it, it relates to shame that we feel... But I want to talk to the, uh, on this emotional level, and, and I fully go into this knowing, Michael, that that you do not, uh, you are you are not going to agree because your experience, not not because you don't understand it, but because your experience was different. But there is something that I think is very key to that stunts the conversation on this topic, and that is for a lot, an overwhelming. A uh, lot of victims of child sexual abuse because a lot of it is incestuous or by very close people, proximity, authority figures, teachers, stuff where, you know, just like you, Michael, and stuff like that. But I think because at the time and the age, your started in, in infancy, so you knew nothing else. And even though mine started at such a young age, I'd had such trauma in other ways in my life by the time I was three that I think that what began at three and a half felt like love to me because I was coddled and, you know, and I don't just mean sexually coddled. I was coddled and, and adored or, you know, or whatever. So there, there is this emotional aspect of a survivor that people that think this has never touched their life don't understand. And so when... And oftentimes when something gets media attention, uh, which is few and far between, but when it does get media attention, when a Jared Vogel comes around or something, they'll take the most sensational things that when they start talking about the emotional aspect, when somebody says that they have feelings for their abuser, then it's tuned out nationally. And that's part of the silence, which is the sickness. So, Andrea, can you address that? Um, Yes, so many great points. I don't even know where to begin, um, but I will try. Anyway. Uh, it was so confusing because, Michael, I'm just in awe as you're talking. I just have to say that. I think you're amazing. Okay, well, next thought. <laughs> amazing, amazing. And you're doing so much good, so thank you for what you're doing and for surviving. Um, and and even though my abuse was different, uh, everything that you're saying has resonated with me. It's so fascinating because I grew up, with such a lack of feeling loved. or That's why I named it Invisible Target. I felt completely invisible by the time I met this teacher. 
and alone and that I didn't fit anywhere. I felt like I was an alien. I, I didn't belong and I was this imposter. And so this teacher just turned that all around for me. He preyed on my need systematically. And he was skilled at it because he had been grooming so many people trying, like fishing, trying to find the right one, that for him to fill that need so deeply and so effectively for two consistent years that he had told me he was in love with me. I didn't, I was completely confused. I just knew I needed him. Um, But he was this authority figure. It was very confusing, the dynamic in itself. And I didn't have a crush on him, nothing. Um, But his words kind of played in my head and manipulated me to think, I, I must love him too. This must be what love is. I don't know what it is. So maybe even though this seems really wrong, I must love him. And then I, you know, he kept working on me. Andrea? Till I, I I'm in love with him. Yes. Andrea, what what exact age would that mindset was? I was a teenager. How old were you so with that mindset? Right there. Right about 15, 16 years old. When you're trying to figure okay, all that out anyway as a teen, um, so right around 15 or 16 years old, um, and you think about when a 16-year-old has, a, you know, has their first love or something, and you're all irrational and crazy and stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're not a logical <laughs> adult yet. You don't have that exactly. part of your brain developed. You, you, you're not, <clears throat> this is why we have laws in place for statutory rape and for age of consent. Okay, because so I'm going to ask a I'm going to ask a hard question. Okay, well, the hard question okay. is only if you want to tell. Uh, how old are you, Andrea, right now? I'm, that's not a hard question. I can do that. I'm 49. <laughs> no, that's not the hard question. That's are you young want to answer that uh, Well, my own trauma this week was that I just bought my first pair of reading glasses, so that was very traumatic. So, but that's another, I love that post. Another, so. Okay, so let me ask yeah. you, all these years okay. later, okay, when you yeah. think about your abuser right now, Mm-hmm. Let's just be really raw and honest. When you yes. think about your abuser right now, give me the first three words that come to mind. Well, this is PG-13, though, right? It's so. PG-13, <laughs> but, I, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I want you to kind of dig deep here because we're talking about emotion. So I really okay, so want the emotion to... I have now when I think yeah. about him is um, hurt, betrayed, battered. Those are the three... I, I don't, there's no fondness, if that's what you're asking, like zero. Um, and the fondness actually went away um, while I was in high school. I tried desperately to get away from him. So the window was very small when I felt these loving feelings because his behaviors completely did a 180, and he was cruel and scary. Um, so I, I have no – there aren't positive feelings about him at all. It's just the, the raw feelings are just betrayal and, and just feeling battered physically. Um, sexually and emotionally, <laughs> mentally, that I, I, you know, will always carry with me. So I'm going to ask. But as a young kid, it was question. a different story, you know. Right. So I, I'm going to ask the hardest question, and okay. you don't have to answer this, okay? But the, because it's highly personal, but this comes okay. to do with the emotions and the evolution of who we are as people. Is there mm-hmm. anything from your experience with this man that parlays into your your actual loving and sexual life today? Oh, and I wrote about things, that in the book. So things that's not that, that, that you tough. detest or things that you have to have. Say that again. What's that? Is 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 there something from this relationship and this abuse that still um, weighs into your emotional and sexual well being today? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I've really worked through a lot of the emotional pieces. I worked very hard for a long, long time. Um, The the sexual aspect, um, absolutely, I'm still affected. I'm 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 a lot better. I've evolved, but I still I call them my leftovers, you know. And so I still can have uh, occasional panic attacks during intimate moments. Thankfully, I have such a wonderfully patient partner who just gets it, helps me through it. Um, I have, you know, body memories at times. Um, it, it That, I think, has been the most profoundly affected aspect of my life is, is me as a sexual being and um, and feeling fully open and um, and just, the, you know, the, the body holds on to memories at a cellular level. And I just started doing, in the last few years, more body work rather than just therapy. Um, the therapy helped me a lot. The body work, I'm seeing so much progress. Um, so I think that um, I, I've tried not to resign. You know, I've, ex- I've gotten to a place where I accept that, yep, how could I not be affected by this? And so I try to make peace with it and kind of keep working on it. But it absolutely um, affects me to this day. Okay, so I, I think, Andrea, I think that everybody um, and and how we heal and how we move forward, I think everybody's a little bit different. And I don't mm-hmm. think that there's a right or wrong answer. I don't think that anybody's means of moving on and how they evolve from mm-hmm. this. Uh, is wrong necessarily, but I but right. I do think that people are a little bit different. So I I want to go yeah. over to Michelle real quick since your experiences were so similar. I think your outcomes as far as the emotional aspect of it might be a little mm-hmm. bit different. And when I had told the listener uh, earlier that they might be surprised at some of the things you hear, here we go, Michelle. You said three words that made her think of her offender. Well, we'll four. start with three words and then you can clarify <laughs> them. <laughs> I mean, I, yours, babe. <laughs> I loved him completely. I I did. Um, I I loved that part of him that groomed me. That was well. It, he acted that part. It wasn't really who he was. But I, I honestly believe that before he even touched me, he completely had me in love with him. You know, he was kind. He was. I was wonderful. I was like no woman he'd ever met, but well, girl, no girl he'd ever met before. I, you know, I meant the world to him. You know, all of those things before he even touched me. And when I say that he stole my innocence, I, I, I mean my mind, my mind, and my just the very innocence that you have as a child to put yourself out there. There was no boundaries and no walls. It. I just totally gave myself to him. And he turned cruel, you know, just like Andreas. He did. He was mean and said awful things to me and called me names and told me I was unworthy and I would never find somebody to love me like he did. And he did awful, awful things to me, sexually deviant things. But there was always that hope for that that part of him. And it has honestly been the hardest part of this experience the days that I write about how much I loved him have been the hardest days because it was real. Um, when Andrea talked about when you talked about the sexual things that you've the things that have changed your life now, I am totally spot on with Andrea. <laughs> Lack of intimacy. Don't you agree with that, Andrea? Just intimacy is so hard to gain. It's, it's, 
the the it, physical intimacy, not the emotional for me. Yes, I, I think that no, I found Michelle. I I have found Michelle. So if if you don't mind kind of defining that briefly, but I have found in my conversations with a lot of different survivors that intimacy actually means a whole lot of different things. Um, I are, thought it was kind of textbook. And it really is. No. And so, and and I'm going to have Michael address that in just a minute. But Michelle, can you kind of zero in on that for a minute? There are so many things that that it took so many things for me in that regard. I I hate kissing, you know, anything that's really personal. I've been married for 20 years. I I can't stand for my husband to kiss me. Um, I can't stand anything intimate in a sexual act that is very very personal. And some of those things came from the deviancy part of that. Um, the, 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 the cuddling, the hugging, the loving, the, the romance, the, the foreplay, anything like that that is about love and intimacy, I just I can't expand my brain there. I can't. It's, it's very difficult. So that would kind of parlay with one of the problems that I personally have that um, sometimes ruffles feathers, and that is that I can't stand um, soft, feathery touches, uh, tentative touches, as I call them, from my partner. Because if you're touching me all soft and feathery and tentatively with shaky hands and stuff like that, to me it feels like you're not supposed to be doing what you're doing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, so... And, and it's 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 really weird. And that doesn't mean that I'm, like, all into S&M. I don't want you, like, dragging me around <laughs> like a cavewoman. That's not what I'm saying. Um, you know, but <laughs> I definitely have issues with certain things. But I have to I have to say this, to be honest, because I don't think that we can have a continuous conversation because everybody's story and, and their evolution in their own story is different. And for me, there are certain things sexually that I know that I seem to be more inclined to like that are a direct relation to the abuses when I was a kid. So I'm going to go right over to Michael because, again, Michael's abuses started in infancy, and so he didn't even have a base of normalcy for any years uh, as far as sex. Uh, to to base something on or have you know that balance, and as 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 an adult, and I think he turned in a little while ago trying to claim he's the oldest uh, here on the panel tonight, which maybe I don't know, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, Michael, I mean, you know, you're an adult, you've had relationships in your adult life. I mean, can we can we talk about sex? Yeah, I, th- I thought you were going to ask me what I thought about my parents. Okay, all right, so I'll, I'll just shift <laughs> in. Well, either or. <laughs> what do you want to ask? I'll, I'll go with the flow. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about let's talk about your parents. Okay, let's talk about your parents and the things that they did to you and how that relates to you as an adult grown man in sex today. All right. Well. For them, when you said the three words, I thought of they screwed up. I have no feelings for them whatsoever. It's flat, and I, you know, I had time they, to think. I of, love that they screwed uh, up. No, that was screwed up. They screwed up. Yep. You didn't, you didn't give us a bullet list of three things. You gave us three words that made more sense than all of it. Go for it, Michael. But 
But one thing I will say is I've gotten older and I I think about all these things. I do not have hate for them. And I know that may sound strange. I'm flat. I have no love. I have no nothing. But I have no hatred for them. I think of them as when they were children and teens and what happened to them. So there's a compassion for whatever happened to them. Uh, But I have no love for them and I have no forgiveness. And I just feel because they screwed up because they had five beautiful children. You know, two of them have taken their lives, and the, the other three of us were all estranged. And I think of my kids, they were the greatest gifts in my life. So I think these shows and other shows and people writing books and all the rest of it, how can we get to the young people? Because uh, we do know a lot of folks, they, they, they start out, being abused, and then some of them can become perps. So how? So breaking that silence, right. and then to segue over to the sex piece. Uh, fortunately, I always had a good outlook on sex. Um, the, where it did affect me, though, when you were talking earlier, as a guy, as a as a musician in bands and all the rest of that, and all the you know all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll baloney. The simple reality, I. Whether I know you you don't like the word promiscuous or one night stands, but it wasn't that I just wanted to bed someone and then not see them again. I could be with someone, I could enjoy the sex, have a great time, enjoy them, and think they're a great person. But then I didn't want to see them again because of what I felt inside. So I there's countless you know there's a lot of women thinking he was just a jerk you know, but that's it wasn't. Anything it had nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with how I felt inside, and I felt that well, then there'd be this twisted line that well, geez, you know, there's something wrong with them if they like me because they really don't know how how um, dirty I am. How inside. dirty we are, yeah. How dirty I am. So I didn't want to. I didn't want to spoil that. So, but I I've been in relationships, and I've I've been fortunate that. I've always, I enjoy sex. The only time that the abuse from the past came in, when I call it the ghosts in the bedroom, was when I was really besieged with a lot of flashbacks. And I I was with my ex for 21 years, and there was a period of a couple years where we would, and we were close physically, emotionally, sexually at once upon a time, would start to get close and the intrusive memories of my parents would come in, and I just that that would freak me out, for, for, and that would just kill the moment. And that lasted for a couple of years, and that was devastating. It was hurtful to me. I know it was hurtful to her, but I just couldn't stop those what those memories, those flashbacks, those little images coming into my head. So. Fortunately, that dissipated and it went away. So I still have a, I've always had a healthy outlook on sex. I, I'm anything between consenting adults as long as people aren't hurting one another. Um, but obviously, I do draw the line if it's children or anything below the statutory rate. And anything also positions of power, whether it's a male or a female. Um, definitely, I think it should be equal, you know, power dynamic. Both people are coming into this on an equal dynamic. You know, Michael, I I I I actually completely agree with everything that you said, and um, that's why I think that you and I, our stories on this panel are are a lot more similar. Um, it, you know, like how Andrea and Michelle are similar, and um, but 
And Sue is kind of, she's in there kind of between us because of the eight-year range uh, that things started with her. And and because it, it wasn't so long term as, as as the rest of us, but I want to I want to say something because it's really important. And I'm glad that you brought it up about promiscuity because I, I'm not against the word promiscuity, and and I don't think that I clarified really what I meant in the first panel. My issue with the term promiscuity is that I, I think that that places blame on the child, on the victim. I think by labeling them promiscuous, it places some blame like something's wrong with them. And I don't necessarily think that that is an appropriate term, but I don't know the other word for it. Because what I think, what I think, and, and I could be wrong, but for me what I think it is is because we're searching for that love and what we know is love is physical touch, because that is what is born and bred into us when when it happens at such young ages as like you and I were, and so we're we're more inclined to respond to to, to respond. All of our digits fire off. Okay, ding 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 ding. Okay, this is it. This I is, this is I good. agree this with you, Sherry. Can I add something? Yes. Why? Yes, why and do. again, if we can find another word other than permission, I, I would go along with that. It's just. It, to me, it's a little more palatable than someone calling us sex addicts because I wasn't addicted. What you just said, I did like being with someone. I loved being held. I loved the touch. I think I said on your show earlier, the last. I just wish I knew how to ask for a hug. You know. Right. <laughs> yeah. That was probably one of the most profound things that I've heard on any show that I've ever done, Michael. Because I myself don't know how to ask for something so simple and basic as a hug. Because what hug. happens, like, it, it, you know, and I and I can only speak to this from the female perspective. Okay, so I'm not shunning the male perspective of this, but I'm a girl. And for girls, when you ask someone for a hug, if they're a male species then it's on again. It just starts this whole process over again. And it might be the same for guys, but it, there is no simple equation. I cannot tell you how many male people that profess to be my friend, that the minute that they thought that they could, they tried because they thought that they would. Um, I want to jump over to Sue real quick because she's been super quiet and we're, we got 15 minutes left of the show. Sue, you want to talk on this? Yeah, a little bit. Um me, it's really one word, and it's. I think we address it on on a couple different levels. There, um, it's vulnerability. Um, I have a lot of problems being vulnerable. The sex I can separate from um, love. Um, sex is a function, but as soon as there's vulnerability in there, where somebody can hurt me, either emotionally or physically. Um, I'm usually the first one out out the door. Um, I was married for about six years to a really great guy who knew nothing of this. Um, I chose not to tell him. Um, I thought, you know, I got a grip on this. There's no reason for him to know. There's no reason for anybody to know. I'm in control, and it always comes back. It, it, I mean, I want people to know that are listening. Uh, you need to address this. You need. You have to. Um, there's no escape from it. And 
I managed to run that one off. Um, not his fault, mine. Uh, it, but I got some help after that. Uh, but I still, uh, you know, address these issues of being vulnerable to anybody. Again, it's it's the power thing. It's the hug thing. It's the, you know, I need help thing. Uh, all those things that are real difficult for me. Exactly. And when we're talking about control, because the control starts with the abuser, okay? The control starts with the, abuse, the abuser. And most of these abusers are using some sort of um, isolation, to create their control, whether it's an emotional or physical, spatial isolation. Um, but emotional is, can usually be even more than spatial and proximity. Um, but as we're adults now, these as victim survivors, as we're adults, we have to have, we have to have a certain semblance of control in our lives, particularly in the bedroom, in our relationships, but not just there, kind of in our lives because so much was taken out of our control. Um, we are running out of time. We have about 12 minutes left. Uh, I'm going to jump over to Andrea, then Michelle, then Michael, and then I'm going to, me and Sue are going to close the show. So, Andrea. Yes, I wanted to um, bring up something that, to um, piggyback on what Michael had said. You know, when he was posing the question, well, what can we do? You know, it's great that we're talking about this. Um, you know, how can we break the cycle? and things like that. And I just want to emphasize how important prevention is. And so many things we're doing in society and in, you know, um, the media and even organizations, so many times we're focusing in a reactive manner after things have happened. And we're trying to break the cycle of shame by talking about it, which is wonderful. But I am so determined to focus on prevention early on, so we don't have so many victims who need to break the silence later. Um, and I just, I I hope a shift is really starting to happen. I, I think culturally we're not as proactive as we could be about a lot of different things in the world. And um, and that's where my efforts are now because, I was, you know, I've been speaking a lot about, you know, my experience. Um, and it's it's challenging sometimes to get teachers and administrators to hear my story. There's a lot of resistance for a lot of different way, reasons and layers, which is understandable. Um, so I've shifted my focus a little bit on prevention in general to educate the kids and the adults, the parents, the teachers. Um, so we can we can help these kids in an early age learn about personal safety and things like that. Um, I just think it's critical. Andrea? And that's, that's, yes. When we talk about prevention, though, I mean, to me, and and the reason that I'm doing specifically this podcast, which I would love to do more than just once a month, um, for right mm-hmm. now, that's all I can do. I'm a one-woman show. I have my weekly show already with Challenge <laughs> right. <and> Rhetoric, <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah. and everything else. But, um, I mean, I, I would love to be able to do this more often. But when we're talking about prevention, I think, and, and and maybe we all disagree, I, I don't know, but the reason specifically I am doing a podcast is because I think the thing that has been lacking the most in any kind of preventative efforts that have been going on since the late 80s, early 90s when they said it's mm-hmm. okay to tell and ran a few right. ads here and there was that we were not talking about it. If you run some ads and say it's okay to tell and then you don't talk about it anymore and the people that it's happened to aren't talking about it because no one wants to hear it, okay? Exactly. So where 
Where do we go in prevention, Andrea? Where can we go? So, and you have to do this really quickly in 60 seconds or less. Where do we start yep. with prevention? Well, with me, I'm working with this organization, Kids Safe Foundation in Florida. It's a nonprofit organization, and our mission is to protect kids by preventing sexual abuse and Internet exploitation and bullying through these comprehensive educational programs for the kids in the school where they get an eight-week class, half an hour, once a week, and their parents and the teachers and caregivers. They're all learning the same messages starting at four years old. So they learn safe touch, unsafe touch, check first, who's in your circle of safe adults. It's where they learn at four years old, it's okay to say the names of body parts, that you keep, if something happens, you tell somebody, and you keep telling until you're believed. And the, But you can't just put all the responsibility on the children of knowing, you know, of keeping themselves safe. So we, te- we talk to, we educate the parents on grooming behaviors. You know, we teach people to teach the kids behaviors to look out for and not for people to look out for. And we teach the teachers on what to look for because for educator abuse, they need to know what to look for in the abuse of teachers. The vast majority of teachers are wonderful. We have to train them on what to look for in the small minority of abusive ones. And we need to, every child needs this education. Just like they learn stop, drop, and roll, they learn how many, how many fires are they going to encounter. <laughs> you know, right. but the statistics are staggering. Well, exactly. You know, one in exactly. four girls, that, one in six boys will be exploited, you know. Right, and that goes with some conversations that you and I have had privately. So uh, yes. let, let me bounce over to Sue real quick because, again, we're winding out of time. Um, I mean, not, I'm sorry, not Sue. Sue, uh, you're going to close out with me. Uh, Michelle, uh, a last comment here on the first step of prevention. I, I think everything Andrea said is wonderful. I think something that we miss is, uh, you know, teaching kids what, you know, how they shouldn't be touched, and those things are all great. Unfortunately, when you get to the teenage years and someone grooms you and you believe in them and you trust them, those things just fall out of place because you don't find it odd. I mean, he normalized all that for me. Uh, But I wanted to hug Michael Skinner when he said that these teachers who know, you know, you knew that they knew, what do we do about that? So I want to touch on something really quick that is probably not going to be very popular, but I told seven people that were adults. Um, there was there was a lot of things. There was a lot of people I told. Uh, my cheerleading sponsor told my mom, when you dangle raw meat in front of a dog, you should expect the dog will take the raw meat. So they clearly knew that this was happening to me. Some of them have said they they were their jobs were threatened, and others just said that they they thought I asked for it. These are adults. We, you know, we need to educate adults on where to go who to go to. If they go to somebody and they need a roadblock, they need to go to the next place. My stepdaughter is a teacher. She said, I don't know where to go next if my administrator doesn't do something. We need to educate kids that there are secrets you don't keep. I had friends that I told. They never told anybody. There, there's so many deeper things that we need to do to, to make these changes, but it starts inside the school with teachers protecting students more than protecting their peers. That, I think, is extremely important. I do, too. Uh, Michael, Michael, what is your uh, final word on prevention? Oh, boy. (laughs) I wish it was a wonderful world that everyone would listen, but we still have a huge society worldwide. People don't want to hear this talk. That That is our reality. 
So how to break that down? Uh, I think just chipping away and getting out as much as you can, talking, speaking, writing. But there is still the silence. Uh, your show is about that, and that is still huge. Uh, it doesn't matter where you are. I know my friends, family, people don't, you know, they, they give me a begrudging, well, that's very nice what you're doing, but they don't want to talk about it. They don't, and that's within our own little circle. So I'm stymied as to how to break that uh, stigma around that and the lack of people wanting to talk about this to address something. is What you were just talking, we'll do the you know stop, drop, and roll and the stranger danger, but they don't want to talk. They don't want to hear about it, and uh, sometimes yeah. I just I get very frustrated with that. I still keep doing what I'm doing, hoping I can just reach one more person, but it's very frustrating. Well, Michael, I think that one is better than none. Uh, Sue, do you have a final comment with regards to prevention specifically? Uh, yeah, and I, again, I, I agree with Michael. We we all have to be on the same page. I remember um, coming home, and, and not to get too graphic, but I was eight years old, and uh, I had I was bleeding vaginally and uh, my mom knew and she kind of made a joke about it um, I I don't know <laughs> I'm not a parent but that would concern me and um, <laughs> Sue, you know, pause Sue, hold on we have less than four minutes left wait, Sue, we have less than okay. four minutes left but you just made a big statement you said you were eight years old you were bleeding vaginally, okay, vaginally, yeah. in the car with your mother. Mm-hmm. Were you bleeding vaginally because of your abuser? Okay, so continue, because that's important for the audience to understand what you're saying. Yeah. and um, But we, we got you got I mean, 60 she, seconds, sorry. <laughs> she, yeah, I know, I know you're trying to... Anyway, she she did ask me a couple questions, but she didn't make a big deal about it. But I remember freezing because I didn't even have the language to tell her what happened, which I think um, Andrea brought up uh, about knowing your body parts and knowing mm-hmm. and knowing how to say this to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why this education is very important to these kids and, and why teachers need to know what the kids' language is. So I just, that's that's where I'm at in prevention. We need to have, be all on the same page. I, I agree. And, and like I have said as I started this podcast, um, you know, I've, I've been doing Challenging the Rhetoric uh, for a while now. It says show number 14 before this show, but that that's a reset. I've been doing this and other shows for a long time. I come from corporate radio. Uh, long before that, I spent my entire adult career in corporate media. And what we never hear, unless there's a big case, is stuff about child sexual abuse. And as the show winds down, I just want to quickly thank everybody that was on the show tonight. So thank you to Frederick Lane, who is already uh, off the air. Uh, he is our cybercrime, forensic, child pornography, child abuse imagery expert. Uh, thank you very much, Fred, for all of your support. Andrea Clemens from Kids Say Foundation and the author of Invisible Target, which you have an opportunity to win that book simply by sharing links on the Facebook page. 
uh, as well as Fred's book, Cyber Traps for Educators. Michelle Forbes, thank you very much for joining us on the panel for the first time. I really hope you join us again next month as well as the others. Michael Skinner, thank you for your belief in me because your story is so hard for so many to struggle to understand because it's so prolific and it's so horrific and and I just I, I want to give you the hug you don't know how to ask for. Um Sue, mm. thank, thank you, you for being my partner in this crime. I, I truly mm-hmm. appreciate everything that every single one of all of you do here. I want to give a quick shout out before my airtime ends to Kim Lakin who is doing some local stuff uh, there in Colorado uh, on this issue. And um, hopefully she'll be joining us back uh, next month, if not the month thereafter. It's been a really great roundtable. Thank you very much. We cannot cover this all even in two hours once a month, and I'd love to do it more frequently. But in the meantime, I hope you all join me next month on March 3rd. Thank you for doing this, Sherry. This is so important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you. Thank you all. 